Hello and welcome to the world's last night. My name is James Thayer. Today we're in Genesis chapter 32. We're going to see Jacob prepare to meet Esau and we're going to see him struggle and wrestle with uh, an angel of the Lord. And I don't really want to give too much more detail until we've actually read it, but it's going to be a really good chapter. Um, so let's dive right in. Verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and God's angels met him. When he saw them, Jacob said, This is God's camp. So he called that place Mahanaim. Okay, so Mahanaim means double camp. Uh, but basically, if you remember, Jacob struck this covenant with Laban. He's not allowed to go back um, there anymore. Laban's going to leave him alone. And so he's headed back to uh, Bethel, back to Canaan back to where Esau lives. Now, remember, Esau swore to kill him. Jacob's mother said, you know, it's only going to be a few days until Esau's wrath turns away and he's not angry at you anymore. Then I'll send for you to to bring you back home. Well, Jacob's mom never sent for him. So all Jacob can imagine at this point is that Esau is still angry at him and still wants to kill him. But God's meeting him in this place. And God has opened Jacob's eyes to where he can see the supernatural and he sees angels camped in the same place he is. And so he's calling it double camp, two different companies, uh, him and his family and servants and these angels. Verse three, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He commanded them, you are to say to my Lord Esau, This is what your servant Jacob says. I have been staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female slaves. I have sent this message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favor. So Jacob is now uh, sending servants ahead to try to barter peace with Esau, trying to seek his favor, see if he's still upset at him and wants to murder him um, because he knows that he wronged him. So in the relationship with uh, Laban, Jacob was in the in the right, you know, and he left there. Well, now he's headed back into a land where, and he, when he last left this area, he left on bad terms, and he was in the wrong. He deceived his brother, stole his blessing. So he knows that. He's afraid. He's also a wealthy man at this point. And I suppose he's just telling Esau, I have all these things to try to I guess maybe give him gifts or to convince him that Jacob's not after his stuff because he's already content. In any case, we'll see what happens. Verse 6, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau. He is coming to meet you and he has 400 men with him. So it sounds like Esau is bringing an army. Verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him into two camps, along with the flocks, cattle, and camels. He thought if if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can escape. So Jacob is um, a man of, I guess, earthly wisdom at this point. He hasn't really sold, uh, bought, I guess, bought into who God is and what God's promises are. And he's still trying to control things and deliver himself with his own wily action. And we've had a lot of characters that have tried this. We've had Isaac and Abraham try to pass off their wives as just sisters, being deceptive, trying to uh, save themselves that way. We've basically just, we've seen a lot of characters behave this way, not trusting in God, but trusting in themselves and their own cleverness. 
to deliver them. Well, as we're going to see, God's a little fed up with this. I'm sure you are too, hearing about this from every single character that we read about. And God's going to come and try to rid Jacob of this nasty habit of just relying on himself. In any case, he divides up the camp and his plan is, well, if Esau murders half my folk, (laughs) the other half can escape. Verse 9, then Jacob said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, go back to your land and to your family and I will cause you to prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Indeed, I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two camps. Please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. Otherwise, he may come and attack me, the mothers and their children. You have said, I will cause you to prosper and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So Jacob is actually, for one of the first times, doing a, a very honorable, God, godly thing, which is praying. Now, he does this after he already made his uh, plans. And honestly, like just reading that is actually convicting to myself, because I do that a lot. I, I, I make my action first. I use my human wisdom first frequently, and then I go to God and pray about it, and... You know, that kind of attitude, it's like a when all else fails, pray kind of attitude. But I think God calls us to pray first. Just like, you know, our tithe is at first tenth. I think God's really big on uh, respecting us if we come to him first with our problems before we try to solve them ourselves. So this is something Jacob probably should have done before he divided his camp up. But it's a good thing he's doing it. Better late than never. Verse 13, he spent the night there and took part of what he had brought with him as a gift— Oh, I wanted to say one more thing about his prayer. He's uh, standing on the word of God. You know, he quotes he quotes God where he says, I will cause you to prosper and I'll make your offspring like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. I think that's really important when we pray is to stand on God's word. That's why often when you hear people pray, they're going to quote scripture. They're going to remind God like he needs it, but they're going to, in a lot of ways, remind themselves. They're going to hold God to these promises that God has given them in their life, just like, um, Jacob's doing here, but they're also going to stand on the promises of God found in his word too. And that's really important for us as believers to always do, because as I've mentioned before, the Bible says in the New Testament says that God is faithful, even when we're unfaithful, because he cannot deny himself. In other words, he cannot not be faithful because his nature compels him to be faithful. In other words, he's good and holy. So, It's really good for us to stand on the promises of the Lord, as Jacob was doing. Okay, verse 13. He spent the night there and took part of what he had brought with him as a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. That is a big gift. He entrusted them to his slaves as separate herds and said to them, Go on ahead of me and leave some distance between the herds. So the big problem here is he's still like trying to send this emissary to uh, placate Esau's wrath. Instead of him going up there in the front, he's staying behind and sending other people when he has every, uh, he should have every bit of confidence to lead these people to Esau and settle things with Esau in person. Because he had just seen angels camping with him the night before. He has those angels with him wherever he goes, just because he 
only saw them there. You know, it doesn't mean that they're not with him all the time for God has said, I am with you. So he could go in confidence, but he's still trying to solve this in his own way. All right. He told the first one, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to? Where are you going? And whose animals are these ahead of you? Then tell him they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau. And look, he is behind us. He also told the second one, the third one, and everyone who is walking behind the animals, say the same thing to Esau when you find them. You are to also say, look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. For he thought, I want to appease Esau with the gift that is going ahead of me. After that, I can face him and perhaps he will forgive me. So the gift was sent on ahead of him while he remained in the camp that night. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female slaves, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of, of Jabbok. He took them and brought them across the streams along with all his possessions. So he's in the rear here with his family crossing this river, which tactically is unsound if Esau's going to attack him because then he's backed up against a river. But he's moving forward. And we're about to see God intervene in Jacob's life in a big way. Verse 24, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip as they wrestled and dislocated his hip socket. Then he said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked Jacob. He replied, your name will no longer be Jacob. He said, it will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So this sounds very mystical. Um, but this is a Christophany. The man wrestling with Jacob is a pre-incarnate Jesus, or at least that's what theologians hold him to be. So what ends up happening is we've seen Jacob throughout this entire time resting in his own strength. And here comes God. He's going to meet him in the night. He's going to have this, this moment, this divine moment of wrestling with God. And he's wrestling all night and... In the end, he comes to find out that this man has some supernatural ability. He just taps and dislocates Jacob's hip. And so all Jacob can do is just hold on to him and hold on to him and hold on to him and grip him tight and beg him to give him a blessing. He says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me because he finally recognizes who this is. And so really throughout Jacob's entire life, he's been wrestling with God. He's had this destiny. He's been trying to usher it in with his own cleverness, bartering, or, yeah, bartering for the birthright, stealing the blessing, and uh, falling into, you know, Laban's clutches, and just his entire life, he's struggled with God, and, you know, a lot of us have that same thing going on. I know that there are Christians who have been Christians for a decade who are still somewhat skeptics, Every so often they have that thought in the back of their mind, you know, does God exist? Then you have others who have struggled with suffering, horrible things have happened to them in their past, and they don't understand why a good God would let those things happen to them. And so they ha they're angry at God. And so all of us in our own way wrestle with God. The Christian ideal, though, is that we surrender because... In the end, God knows better. And in the end, he does want to bless us. But in order for him to do so, we have to surrender. And surrender feels really, really good when you're surrendering to God. You can leave your burdens behind and, and Jesus will take them upon himself. And so, 
This is sort of a a physical representation of what many believers go through spiritually with the Lord. And so we're going to see basically what what happens with the changing of Jacob's name. Uh, so this man basically says, you know, what's your name? And of course, God knows what Jacob's name is, but he wants Jacob to say it. Because as you and I both know, Jacob's name doesn't really uh, invoke, I guess, righteousness. It's a scoundrel. It's a trickster. It's a usurper, a supplanter. And so Jacob's going to have to, you know, tell him who, who his name is. So he says, Jacob. And then the man says, your name will no longer be Jacob. He said, it will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, Israel means uh, God rules. And he is basically, by surrendering to God, prevailing. If that makes sense. It's counterintuitive. So, verse 29, the Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered him, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So he already knew. <laughs> I think the context here is this man, um, Jacob already knows that this is the Lord. And so he's asking, well, why do you ask me my name? He's like, you already know it. You know who I am. So God blesses him there. Verse 30, Jacob then named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face and I have been delivered. That's a huge statement. How many people can say that? Um, Peniel means face of God, by the way. The sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping on his hip. That is why, to this day, the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket, because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. That's I actually either glossed over that in my past readings of this chapter, or just didn't think about it, but... That's so interesting that they abstain from eating the thigh muscle at the hip socket. That's really, really cool. Um, I'm going to read a little note at the bottom. Observe, observant Jews maintain this practice to, to, till today. Very interesting. So, for the rest of his life, it looks like Jacob's going to be limping. Um, of course, he has a new name now, Israel. So, commentators will like to bring up the fact that Jacob is called, from this point onward in the Bible, called by the name Jacob, roughly twice as often as he's called by the name of Israel. And people like to bring bring that to a um, an illustration of the Christian life and how we always are constantly fluctuating and struggling between becoming Israel, which is someone who has submitted and uh, surrendered to God, and Jacob, someone who wants to rule their own life, who uses their own cunning, their own intelligence, their own strength to try to deliver themselves. And, uh, and so as Christians, we wrestle back and forth, and we, we go back and forth between these kind of two personas, these two names. So that's the end of the chapter there. The next chapter, we're going to have Jacob actually meet Esau. We're going to see if his plan actually worked. But the big takeaway here is really what we've just been talking about, which is the fact that God desires us to surrender to him, to not have to do everything in our own strength. For one, it's exhausting. You just can't do it all in your own strength, and you screw it up more often than not. Um, but two, he desires a relationship, and he wants you to know that he's there for you, that he loves you, he cares for you. He is going to work things out in, in your life for your good, but you have to come to a point where you decide, I'm going to surrender 
the rule of my life over to the one who created me. We've talked about the ultimate sin, how almost every other sin out there can trace itself back to this one idea of, I want to be the God of my own life. And that's pride. It's the desire, it's that first sin that we read about Satan committing, desiring to be like God, and uh, instead of being a, a child of God. So, I think that's sort of the, the biggest takeaway from this, is that we have to lay that down. And Jesus talks about this frequently in, in the New Testament, talking about how you got to lay your life down in order to find it. The man who seeks his life will, will lose it, but the one um, who lays it down will find it. Take up your cross. So, in other words, there's this biblical principle of if you clutch something too much, it's eventually going to corrupt you, destroy you, or be taken from you for your own good. And in this case, it seems like God took uh, Jacob's physical capacity from him for his own good, left him with this limp, and that's just in the physical body, but he blessed him with a new name that represents how he he's, can possibly live his life in the future in submission to God. So that's it. I'm not going to ramble on that too much more. I think you get the point. So until next time, this is James from The World's Last Night.